This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. It's a pleasure to welcome Peter Batts back to the program. Hello, Peter. Bob, uh, good afternoon. Glad to be back. Peter Betts, Fulton County historian for many years, professor emeritus at Fulton Montgomery Community College, and he writes a bi-weekly column on Fulton and Montgomery County history for the Leader Herald newspaper in Gloversville. We're going to start uh, with one of uh, Peter's uh, stories. Uh, it's been a, a column, I'm sure, in the past, maybe even more than once. I don't know. But it's called The Great Soda Battle in Gloversville in 1933. Tell us about it. Well, I thought I'd pick this one because I'm fairly sure we have not done this one before on the podcast. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, I think this story has quite a bit of fizz and people <laughs> should enjoy it. Yes. It's bubbling all over. <laughs> and... Uh, March 1933 was anything but a quiet month in Gloversville, or in the rest of America for that matter, thanks to the fact that it was President Franklin Roosevelt's first month in office. But what transpired right here in our own Glove City during that frigid month of the Great Depression serves to remind us that controversial local laws and small-town political battles are nothing new, and are frequently combined for that matter. Mm-hmm. In that far-off time, the Gloversville City Charter contained an ordinance passed in 1924 mandating the purchase of a vendor's license to sell soft drinks. On the morning of March 1, 1933, a news, the newspaper tells us, quote, a veritable bombshell was exploded this afternoon when an f- officer's of four of the largest fraternal organizations here in town were subpoenaed into city court to ascertain why they have no city soft drink licenses. The subpoenas were issued at the behest of Mayor George W. Green by City Judge F. Law Comstock and served on the Eagles, Elks, Moose, and the Concordia Club. Mm-hmm. Now, these clubs immediately clubbed together and hired an attorney, Harold Ward, to represent them. Uh, and meanwhile, subpoenas were served by Gloversville police on uh, Lewis Ridgeway and, Ro- and Ross Cohen of the Elks and other uh, people of the uh, different organizations, the Moose and Eagles, as I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. And the following morning, the city court was jammed by reporters uh, in, indignant club members and probably a few unemployed people just hoping to find a place to keep warm. Right. Uh, Ward spoke for the accused first by asking if the procedure was an open investigation or a trial. Uh, City Attorney Wood replied, we're authorized under the charter to direct the court to issue subpoenas if a complainant suspects that a crime has been committed and this we have done. Attorney Ward fired back. Then there is no defendant here and no one has been arrested. Wood replied, where the defendant is unknown, we have a right to subpoena witnesses and secure their testimony. Ward said, I refuse to allow the witness to take the stand. (laughs) City Attorney Wood then called one of the subpoenaed witnesses, Louis Ridgway, to take the stand. Stay seated, Ward instructed Ridgway. Judge Comstock then said to the man, Ridgway, take the stand. (coughs) 
Ward replied to Ridgway, sit still. Ridgway sat still. Whereupon Judge Comstock ordered Detective Harry Hart to arrest Mr. Ridgway and lock him up for contempt of court. Hart led Ridgway off to a nearby holding cell. Ross Cohen, also from the Elks Club, was next. The same scenario happened, and uh, Cohen was led away in the same manner. Hmm. Attorney Ward now addressed the judge. For purposes of these proceedings, we now have a test case. Comstock agreed, but Mayor Green and Wood requested the arrested men post a bail of $500. Attorney Ward immediately objected, saying, These prisoners are not charged with serious crimes. <coughs> they are responsible men, own property, have homes here, and let us proceed this, with this case like gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Wood replied with some indignation, and you know how good lawyers are at getting <laughs> indignant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think it's the first thing they teach you, actually. Could be. I object to the statement of the attorney that this is not a serious offense. These men have flouted the city and this court. <laughs> at this moment, a voice of reason entered the fray from the back of the room, and the person a former city judge, William E. Walsh, who had been listening all the while. Walsh said he doubted that the city court had the power to fix bail in a case where it had not yet even determined if the people subpoenaed and arrested were the actual servers of the soft drinks. Judge Comstock, perhaps looking for a way out, agreed. And in spite of Mayor Green's strenuous objections, the issue of bail was dropped. At this juncture, it appears that former Judge Walsh joined with Ward as co-counsel, and the two attorneys spent the rest of the day drafting habeas corpus writs uh, (laughs) so that Ridgway and Cohen could get themselves out of jail. On March 3rd, Ward issued a statement obviously directed at Mayor Green, which said in part, It would seem that at such a time as this, when our people are in want, our banks are closed, and businesses are trembling on the brink of disaster, our city officials could find something better to do with their time than worrying about those things and not whether some clubs do or do not have soft drink licenses. (laughs) Dear me. Right. Good point. (laughs) Although times must have been truly terrible during that long gone depression winter of 1933 justice was not slow attorneys ward walsh and wood swiftly took themselves down to amsterdam to the chambers of supreme court judge christopher heffernan uh, each filing papers in support of their opposite legal positions on the very next day march 4th a saturday heffernan studied the case and rapidly issued his opinion. In strong words, he denounced the actions of Mayor Green and City Judge Comstock and said, and the newspaper quoted him, Gentlemen, there is no need to argue the matter further. I find that the mayor cannot just have people brought before a magistrate upon his own say-so, nor can they be deprived of their rights and liberty without the process of law. The mayor is probably honest, but his proceedings are most high-handed and illegal. 
The mayor had no, has no jurisdiction to proceed as he did, and the magistrate has no jurisdiction to issue the warrants. I find that Mayor Green and Judge Comstock have therefore laid themselves open to charges of false imprisonment. Mm-hmm. You know that word probably. Uh-huh. <laughs> he was leaving politics out of it, I guess. Sure. Anyhow, with that, he ordered Ridgway and Cohen to be immediately released. So died the soft drink caper, but not before a humorous commentary appeared in a pop in the popular Amsterdam Evening Recorder column along Main Street, the editor of whom was you, Donlin. Absolutely, you <laughs> Donlin. Okay. And Hugh Donlin wrote uh, about Mayor Green and, and his uh, soda caper under the heading Big Game Hunting. <laughs> he said, a very delicate situation exists up in Gloversville where Mayor Green has gone on the warpath to make fraternal clubs take out soft drink licenses. The clubs contend they do not serve the public and refuse, therefore, to abide by the mayor's edict. Judge Comstock went biblical and condemned two stewards of the Elks who were said to think more of the lodge rules than the city charter. My advice to the crusading mayor is that he get himself a little gun and tramp the surrounding countryside in search of rabbits, for it is quite dangerous hunting Elks, moose, and eagles (laughs) with a weapon no more powerful than a soft drink ordinance, which is merely a pop gun. Oh, dear. Uh, do you know what happened to the ordinance? I mean, did it just... Well, I, I would assume it has long since disappeared since we now can go anywhere we want and and uh, drink a soft drink. I, I don't think that... If it, if it exists at all, it was probably supplanted by the state long ago. <laughs> Dear, the great soda battle in Gloversville. Yeah. Now, uh, of course, this comes near the end, right, of Prohibition, prohibition unless it end, ended already, Uh and that's another uh, fascinating chapter in American history. And uh, you've uh, prepared some information on opposition to prohibition in Fulton County. Well, there was certainly quite a lot of that. And I'm reading off my computer on on this one here. Uh, let's see. Where will we start here? The 18th Amendment closed legitimate bars and breweries from 1919 to 1933 ushering, as we know, in the age known as the Roaring Twenties. Most illegal bar rooms were either in our downtowns or on our highways. Thirsty men wanted a drink after work, and with so many factories in Amsterdam and Gloversville in particular, uh, hidden bars appeared in almost every local working-class neighborhood. The highway roadhouses were a worse problem because their locations, of course, encouraged drunken driving. Mm-hmm. Uh, just how many gin joints existed in downtown Amsterdam or Gloversville uh, alone, we will never know. But the locations of a few that were operating in the late 1920s were revealed in the August 1929 Morning Herald when 10 illegal bar rooms were named, and temporary injunctions against their operation were handed down, again, by Supreme Court Judge uh, Christopher Heffernan, based on raids and uh, undercover purchases by agents of the Albany Federal Prohibition District. As the Herald explained, these proceedings are the first of the kind 
in this county and are based on federal law. Now, Bob, I find that surprising when you consider that prohibition started in 1919, and here we were 10 years later in 1929. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and yet they're saying it's the first of first of these kinds of things that that went yeah, on up here. Yeah, hard to believe. Yeah, uh, it the injunction is directed not only against the owners and operators, but also against the property itself. It not only closes the property for one year, it also enjoins and restraints permanently the defendant's use of it. Hmm. Okay? Uh, Prohibition Inspector E. Ray Hardenbrook and Fulton County District Attorney Cassidy were not kidding, and Cassidy wanted other liquor vendors to know uh, that proceedings were being prepared against a number of them at the time. He announced that. Uh, and then it gave, gave a list of the various businesses closed. One or two of them uh, went into details, and this is the fun part. Okay. How was the evidence gathered? Evidence in each case was secured by several raids and at various times by federal agents, resulting in the purchase by them of liquors and other intoxicating beverages in violation of the law. Mm-hmm. And it appears to me, Bob, these these agents really put some gusto into their work. <laughs> yes. There was one particular place called the Million Dollar Mystery. Ah. Okay. It was, I assume, a bar. Yes. It was referred to as a men's social club. Sure. Named after what was a popular movie serial at that time, which I don't know anything about, but right. that apparently was called the Million Dollar Mystery also. Hmm. Now, here's what went on. Agent Alvin Hirsch bought five highballs and one straight whiskey on May 18th. On May 31st, the process was repeated. And a third visit was made by agents on June 1st. And they bought more drinks. They just have to be sure, Peter. Exactly. And this is what it says. Agent Hirsch and his fellow agents were either very dedicated to their jobs or the quality of the liquor at the mystery was above average. <laughs> Could be. But at the same time, one wonders just how the legal injunction was obtained, considering that the hardworking agents obviously consumed all the evidence. Hope they weren't driving home when they did that. Well, that's, that's a good hope, too. Yeah. Uh, indeed, federal agents mm-hmm. Craig and Hirsch seem to have been tireless in their endeavors to enforce involuntary sobriety. Just as they did at the mystery, they also visited what was called the Vincent Place three times. Mm-hmm. On their first visit, and the newspaper quotes, Mrs. Vincent, Vincent sold them seven glasses of beer, three glasses of wine, three glasses of whiskey, and one glass of gin. Okay. Uh, it would be hard to write a report after that. I know. Set them up, boys. One assumes these experienced prohibition agents were capable of deducting from even their first visit to the Vincents that alcohol was being served on the on the premises. <laughs> Yet they also found it necessary to return two more times <laughs> to buy more drinks to be absolutely positive. Well, and maybe they even brought their wives and girlfriends with them. Right? Just be. speculation. In the case of the Million Dollar Mystery, perhaps the federal agent's generous alcohol consumption while lingering there in the cause of duty clouded their vision, (laughs) for there were more mysterious activities going on in the mystery's back rooms that missed their clouded eyes. 
It is also odd that none of them stopped to wonder where all the liquor they were so busy consuming as evidence was coming from. Mm-hmm. The answer to this was another. this other mystery announced itself very suddenly and very loudly on the afternoon of May 14, 1930, when a major explosion erupted. The Morning Herald headlined, Big Still on West Fulton Street, Dismantled Under Direction of Prohibition Agents. Oh, dear. This headline explained the ruckus, nor was this hidden distillery a small operation. The newspaper stated, it was estimated that this clandestine plant cost between twenty and thirty thousand dollars. It was a big still. <laughs> and where where this uh, where was this highly efficient distillery located? But in the very back room, uh, that was the same building that the million dollar mystery fronted. Okay. Okay. I've been past it just for the uh, curiosity of it. Uh, it's really just a short short step from one of the major mills, or what was then one of the major mills. So you can understand that people got thirsty on the way home and probably kept the thing going. Sure. The large explosions uh, revealed its presence on, to the whole West Fulton Street neighborhood. <laughs> Jarring neighbors, who probably already knew it existed anyway. Well. Employees of the Gloversville Leather Corporation were attracted to the explosion by uh, and and on looking out the mill saw three men running away from the place very rapidly <laughs> they notified the police who responded to the call and found the very elaborate equipment chief smith immediately notified the albany prohibition office which sent two agents to the city who rapidly determined this was one of the largest stills in upstate new york that had ever been discovered Mm-hmm. Uh, the popular mystery building, of course, was badly damaged inside and out. The interior, it said, is considerably wrecked. A reinforced wooden floor on the second floor was heaved. <coughs> when agents arrived, 30 barrels of mash in one room and eight in another were found to be working, and a gas stove stood in the middle of the room to provide warmth for the mash to ferment. <laughs> It became necessary to wait for a time to permit the fumes to clear before they were even able to go in. Well, One reason this large still had not been detected was because another crime we now refer to as theft of services kept many noisy outsiders from entering the building. They, meaning the police, found upon examination that the men operating this place had bypassed both the water and the gas meters in the building, obtaining both for free. Hmm. The federal agents supervised the dismantling of the still, which was carted off and purchased by a local junk dealer. Whether or not he decided to set it up somewhere else later is unknown. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Peter Betts is uh, joining us, uh, telling uh, stories from the old days. Uh, Peter writes a biweekly column on Fulton and Montgomery County history for the Leader Herald newspaper in Gloversville. Back in just a moment, I'm Bob Cudmore of the Historians Podcast. We depend on your contributions to keep us rolling along. You can go to our GoFundMe campaign online, gofundme.com forward slash 
Historians 2017, and you can make a donation to cover our technical and other expenses. Thanks to the many who have uh, done that already. If you don't like to handle things online, you can simply send me a check made out to Bob Cudmore and send to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. That's 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. I have an addendum to the Prohibition story if we have time, but I wanted to make sure we get in uh, our other uh, chosen topic, which has nothing to do with soda or booze, uh, but uh, has to do with something called the Freedom Train of 1949. Uh, Peter, what was that? Well, Bob, when I first mentioned this to you last week, you had said that you didn't uh, recall anything about it. And I was thinking, my immediate thought was that was strange because it did come to Amsterdam. But then I realized you're several years younger than I am. And I was only, uh, I think, seven years old at the time myself. So it's not a surprise that uh, you didn't recall it. Yeah, it was 1949. I was four. Okay. Well, they probably weren't taking you out to see that many freedom trains at the age of (laughs) four. The freedom train is coming. We kids weren't quite sure what it was, but we knew we wanted to see it. For once, I can report on an experiment, that, uh, on an experience that I and others still living can remember and actually participated in. But for those readers who don't recall the Freedom Train that toured the United States from 1947 through 1949 and what it meant to Americans at the time, this is the story. Mm-hmm. It all began in April 1946 when the Assistant Director of Public Information in the Department of Justice, a man named William Koblenz, took a, took a lunch uh, in the public display section of the National Archive, and it saddened him that the only way people around the country could ever view the historic original documents, such as the Constitution, uh, was to come there to travel to Washington, which, of course, many people cannot do. Mm-hmm. Sitting there, probably chewing on a sandwich, he conceived mm-hmm. the idea of taking some of these valuable documents uh, across country and making it possible for more people to see them. Mm-hmm. He took this idea to uh, a man named Solomon Buck, who was uh, a national archivist, and Buck immediately uh, passed the buck, of course, no <laughs> unintended. To Attorney General Thomas Clark, who was a close friend of President Truman, and Truman and Clark and Truman both thought it was an excellent idea, and Truman said that he would support it. Scan ahead to September 17, 1947, when the seven-car freedom train with an honor guard of 29 U.S. Marines and three specially converted railroad cars exhibiting our most valued historic documents rolled out of Philadelphia behind a state-of-the-arts, connectedly-built Alco diesel engine for the start of what would become a 37,000-mile national tour. Wow. The tour included all 48 states, traversed 53 railroad lines, and continued on until January 22, 1949. More than 3 million viewers went on board uh, during the 326 stops. Mm-hmm. We're getting down on time now, aren't we? Well, we have five minutes. We do. Okay. That'll be all right then. The Freedom Train can hardly be missed. It was painted red, white, and blue in an eye-catching color combination. 
The engine was loaned by Alco. The three exhibit cars belonged to the Pennsylvania Railroad, and the three Pullman cars providing accommodations uh, for the Marines and the train crew were loaned by Pullman. Coordinated with the train's kickoff event was a popular song written by Irving Berlin and recorded by several artists of the day, Benny Goodman, Johnny Mercer, and the Andrew Sisters. Now that I don't remember anything yeah, about. Mean, a song called "The Freedom Train." Apparently, yeah, yes. Yeah. But that I've, you know, I go through hundreds of records and antique shops, and I've never yet seen a copy of it. So, mm-hmm. who knows? Uh, uh, let's see. Other advertising ploys included a short movie shown nationwide in the theaters and schools, and that I do remember. Uh, that was shown in grade schools in Amsterdam, and I remember seeing that. It was called Our American Heritage. Mm-hmm. There was a special issue of comic book uh, featuring contemporary comic heroes such as Joe Palooka, Orphan Annie, Dick Tracy, and Captain Marvel, who somehow were all segued into being connected somehow with the Freedom Train mm-hmm. to publicize it. Kellogg's and other cereal makers offered train-related premiums one could obtain in the usual send-in-the-box-top manner. And I also clearly remember the famed Dunkin' Yo-Yo, which was a big thing in those days, enticing the bigger kids to buy a special red, white, and blue Dunkin' Freedom Train Yo-Yo. Which probably should show up on eBay sooner Hmm. or later, but (laughs) I've never seen one yet. Probably. Uh, Could be. Uh, lots of local public uh, publicity campaigns existed. In Amsterdam, we received tickets at school, uh, enough for each family. So my parents and I visited the train after dinner on a cold, dark February evening. I remember mm-hmm. gazing in hushed awe at the original copy of the Constitution, or at least I thought it was. Actually, uh, there were there are supposedly 13 original copies. We didn't know that then, so we thought this was it, you know. But this was one of the original, original copies. Yes, definitely. It was carefully protected behind heavy glass, of course. Mm -hmm. The Freedom Train went west from Amsterdam to Fonda, where an FJ&G steam engine brought the cars to Gloversville for three days and to Johnstown for one day. Of course, being Fulton County, uh, we couldn't just have it one place. We had to (laughs) have it in both cities, you know. Right. And probably Johnstown was upset they got only one day. Well, I don't know. As the leader Republican tells it, the Freedom Train was dedicated in Albany last week by Governor Dewey. The first stop was at Schenectady, where 10,900 people filed through the cars during its five-day stay. The next stop in Amsterdam, 13,000 people uh, looked over the important documents. The train was then brought to Johnstown for one day where 3,000 people studied it, and in Gloversville for three days where 14,700 people uh, looked at it. I cannot remember the Amsterdam school system doing anything beyond handing out tickets to all students and urging us to visit it, which we did. But in Fulton County, the schools made a concerted effort to see that all students toured the train. The leader Republican reported between 9 and 3 p.m. yesterday, 4,000 students from schools in Gloversville and all parts of Fulton County visited the display. 
Now, I can say more about this, but do you need a couple minutes to talk about what you were going to? Well, I don't think I really have time to. Well, I'll try to bring it up quickly. We just have a few seconds. Uh, Dennis Webster, who writes history books about the Mohawk Valley, he's based in Utica. His book, Wicked Mohawk Valley, has the story of the creeping death, which was bad booze that was fatal, that apparently was distributed, if if not bottled or whatever, by a woman in Gloversville, although I think she got it from someplace in Utica, and and it was, you know, they didn't mean to kill people, but inadvertently the makers of the booze used antifreeze in it, and well, so. Yeah, one one has heard stories of that happening in, at different places yeah. throughout that period. But, Peter, we are just out of time. These were great stories. I thank you very much, Peter Betts. You're welcome. Peter Betts uh, was Fulton County historian for many years. He uh, writes a bi-weekly column on local history for the Leader Herald newspaper in Gloversville. I'm Bob Cutmore. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast.